Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. All right, as I said, today we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 58. And while we don't know a ton about the actual history or the occasion of it, uh, we do see in a superscription, which is that little title underneath the actual heading of the psalm, that it's another psalm given or attributed to David. It says it's a mictum of David. Now, it's important to know that the superscriptions, those little headings, are not in the original Hebrew. So at the end of the day, while some of them might be incredibly accurate, some may not be, it doesn't really matter one way, shape, or form or the other, and many times, because it doesn't change the actual meaning of the text. But what I want you to understand is that whether or not this comes from David, or whether or not this comes from a particular time of his life, doesn't ultimately matter in one sense, because the psalm is speaking to a reality that transcends all of time and space. It speaks to a reality that is about judgment and salvation. And that's why I say it's a unique psalm. It's a psalm that has caused no shortage of debate among Christians for millennia at this point, but it is a unique psalm, and it's because it's called an imprecatory psalm. Now, if you don't know what an imprecatory psalm is, the word imprecation just simply means judgment. So what he's doing throughout this entire psalm is calling a curse down upon his enemies. He's looking upon those who wish to do him harm, and he is asking that God would judge them in very horrific ways. He's asking God would bring forth justice on the wicked. He's asking God would judge the evildoer and ultimately pour out his wrath on them. And so it is not a light topic. It's not a light psalm. These psalms include language that offend our modern sensibilities, if we're completely honest with him. No doubt, some of you have actually heard the line from Psalm 137 that says, happy is he who dashes your little ones or your babies against the rocks. Many atheists have taken that up on the internet, especially on things like TikTok, and they have simply objected to it, saying, I thought you were pro-life Christians, and yet your Bible calls for the death of infants by slamming them against the rock. That's a line from an imprecatory psalm. That is God's holy word. No doubt many an evangelical has even had the same exact sentiment. They've heard those phrases and they see this statement contained in Israel's songbook, no less, and they say, how cruel or unjust must this God be? Or surely they will say the God of the Old Testament is a vengeful and wrathful God, but the God of the New Testament, not so. You've all heard that one, have you not? The reality, though, is that from no matter who you see it, both the atheist, both the wishy-washy Christian, the reality is that they just simply are being betrayed that they don't know their Bibles all that well. The reason I say that is that all throughout Scripture you find severe warnings of judgment and wrath in horrendous terms. In the book of Revelation, you find horrendous depictions of God's wrath where it describes the wine press of God's wrath, where he stands in it and stomps it out, pouring out a river of blood that runs for 180 miles to the height of the bridle of the horse. That's how severe it gets. 
Isaiah 63, it depicts Jesus in all his fury. He stands and some ask him, why are your clothes red? And why are your garments like the one who treads the winepress? And he simply responds, I trampled them. In my anger, and I trod them down in my fury. Their blood spattered my garments, and all my clothes were stained. Why? For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption had come. Judgment, salvation. And I know some of you are incredibly squeamish at hearing that right now, are you not? because this makes you all wildly uncomfortable. But I also know some are far, far too comfortable with such language, that they become giddy over it. And the problem ultimately is that we fall into one of two extremes in the church. We are either so embarrassed by the wrath of God that we hide it, that we shy away from it, that we never talk about it, especially when we are run up against those who we know are destined for wrath, or we become like the Pharisee. We desire to see any and all of our political and social opponents condemned to drink the cup of God's wrath down to the very dregs, and we pray with superiority, Lord, I thank thee that I am not like them. Both of those responses are incredibly misguided, to say the least. The scripture does give an answer, though, to how we are to understand these psalms, how we are to apply them, how to apply all of the passages speaking about the wrath of God. Uncomfortable as it may make us. First, we need to recognize that wrath ultimately, according to scripture, is a good thing. It is a good thing because God is displaying his justice against sin. Even as a psalmist prays for God's wrath to be poured out upon the evildoer in this psalm today that you will hear, it is a good prayer. It's a prayer that you and I make all the time without even thinking about it. When you pray that Christ would return, one half of what you're praying for, whether you recognize it or not, is that Christ would return and pour forth blazing hot vengeance, that he would express his indignation and wrath because it is not a time of sunshine and butterflies, it is a time of much bloodshed and death, where his fury and indignation are poured out without restraint. When you pray that a loved one would be saved, what you are praying for, even though you may not know it, is wrath indignation, retribution, a retribution poured out on the person of Jesus Christ in their place but still a wrath and a retribution that must take place for justice to be accomplished. For the genuine Christian, God's judgment, God's wrath, ultimately, is a thing of hope. And the reason I say that is because through the outpouring of God's wrath, he saves. He saves. At the very same time judgment comes upon the wicked, salvation is always given to those whom he calls righteous. And we see this all throughout Scripture. Scripture never divorces God's judgment or wrath from his salvation. In the Old Testament, you see this all the time, don't you? When Noah and his family are saved on the ark, but what did God do? Yet destroy the whole earth in a flood. 
When Lot and his daughters were saved, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah through horrendous fire in brimstone. When Israel was saved out of Egypt, God poured forth his plagues and destroyed the armies of the Pharaoh by drowning them into the sea. When Christ returns, there are ample prophecies that will refer to him as the one who is the breaker, meaning he will literally shatter the nations with a rod of iron and put his enemies under his feet when he comes to rule and reign. And it will be a thing of terror for many. But it will be a day of salvation for his children. What we've done, though, is that we've taken many of these stories of wrath and we've simply turned them into coloring book pages for our kids. We've made the wrath of God cute. And we don't see how bizarre that is. But there's nothing cute about the wrath of God. But the more important reality is that if we understand the wrath of God as we should, and I mean as you and I should, even as Bible-professing, Jesus-hoping Christians, it should cause us to pause. It should strike us with a sense of sobriety. It should make us recognize at the very core of who we are that we are the ones who are deserving of wrath, that But for the grace of God in Jesus Christ, there we would actually go. And so what I aim to do today is simply show you why all of this is true. Why is wrath good? Why is it that we should actually hope in this reality? Why is it that we should be cautious and sober? And I'll show you that in three basic parts. In verses 1 through 5, I want to simply show you the occasion for judgment. The occasion for judgment God's judgment is never without a reason, never without cause. Then again, in verses 6 through 9, I'm going to show you the call of judgment. God's judgment is never without a curse or a consequence, if you will. And finally, in the last two verses, 10 and 11, I will show you the joy of judgment. And the joy of judgment is something that we find utterly bewildering, if we are honest, but there is yet joy to be had in judgment. The reason why is quite simple. Judgment, again, is never divorced from salvation. But the question, especially when we get to the very end of this entire sermon, is if we are the target of this psalm, the evildoer, the one whom God's curse is upon, or if we are the righteous. And how do you know? We like to think we're the righteous one. Now look with me at verse 1, and we can start to see all of this unfold. Again, one through five, the occasion for judgment. Notice what the psalmist writes here. He says, do you indeed speak with righteousness, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? No. In heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent. Like a deaf cobra that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of the charmers or a skillful caster of spells. Notice how he begins this whole section by simply laying out his complaints about the wicked, right? He's bringing every bit of them before God. He's looking at them and saying, These are men who are filled with wickedness from the womb to the tomb, essentially. But it's important to know that these men, these men being targeted in verse 1 are actually rulers or judges in a psalmist's day. 
Some of your translations, like mine, will say the word gods, right? In verse 1, do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? It's the word Elohim in the Hebrew. Elohim often does refer to God, the God most high, but it can often also appeal to various unknown wicked gods of the pagan nations, right? Or even judges or rulers. Literally translated, it could be said, mighty ones. And that's what it's referring to here. The occasion of what it's saying, essentially, is that these are men in authority. The basic gist of it is that they are representatives of God. They are to rule. They are to exercise their authority on behalf of God. They are to rule with justice and with equity. They are to, therefore, subject themselves ultimately to what he desires and not what they desire. That's their form. That's their function. Scripture says no man comes into authority apart from God, but the Scriptures also make no hesitation, simply saying every ruler, all authority, is subject to God. They must obey God. That is their call. But these men are abusing their roles. They've usurped, essentially, the commands of God and ruled in ways that ultimately just favor themselves instead of God's people. They are to rule, again, with justice and equity, but they don't. And it's no surprise to find that this is the case in Israel's day, right? This is a problem of all who come into authority, or at least of all times of people in authority. Countless times in history, we find those who have stepped well outside of their purview or well outside of the way that God has designed for them to rule and to reign. They become wicked judges and rulers or kings over the earth. But the simple reality is that this is why these men are being judged in this psalm today. They have stepped outside of God's jurisdiction. Their role is to uphold the law. They are to be a terror to evildoers, but what they have become instead of a terror to the righteous. They have perverted every bit of their office. And how they have done so, he makes very, very clear in this psalm. Now notice, he outlines in precise ways all the ways they have actually done this. In verse 1, you can see he asks them again that question, do you indeed speak righteousness? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no. They have been given to unjust speech. He also says they rule with partiality. When he asks if they judge uprightly, all he's saying is that they've simply shown favoritism in everything they do in their decisions in court. They don't treat men equal before the eyes of the law. What they do is uphold their own desires. They have wayward hearts, he even says, from birth. Ultimately, what he's referring to here is that they don't place themselves under the authority of God. They know the way that is right. They know the way that God is required. They act, and yet they go a contrary way. Verse 2, again, he says they have violent hands. They're quick to shed blood. They murder. Verse 3, they have lying tongues. Verse 4, they have destructive tongues. Every bit of what they do leads people to ruin. Verse 5, he even says they are the epitome of pride. Why? They are much like the stubborn snake who will not be charmed. They won't humble themselves. They will not listen to the word of God. They will not heed it. They just reject it. The whole point of this indictment is that the psalmist is looking at these men and saying there is a reason for their judgment. The whole of their nature and character, their authority, everything screams why they should be judged. Now going back to verse 1, Again, he asked these rhetorical questions. The answer was obvious. 
It's a no. They don't rule with justice. They don't speak with righteous speech. They've climbed to the top, but they use every bit of it to simply do what they want in complete lawlessness and wickedness. Now you hear that, and it's not very hard for us to apply it to our own world today, is it? You and I literally sit here today while our culture celebrates the chief sin of pride. Lawlessness, anarchy are not merely said to be good and proper things to accept. They are celebrated. They are lifted up as a very paradigm of virtue. And often our laws protect it or they simply overlook it. But don't get too comfortable. It is incredibly easy for us to look outside of these four walls and condemn the world. It is incredibly easy for us to be able to look at this unbelieving world and say that they are filled to the brim with evil, and you wouldn't be wrong in saying that. But the focus of this psalm deals with those who are rulers in Israel. It deals with the people of God. He's dealing with the judges who are corrupt in every form, and he says, you know better. It certainly applies to those who are outside of the faith, but make no mistakes about it. Whom he is speaking to are those to whom the law has been revealed. Ultimately, what it identifies is that there's much more at stake than them simply being those who have perverted the law of God. These are to be the children of God. They are to be the light among the nations. They are to be the ones who reveal God to mankind through their own love of God. And yet they are at war with him. Notice again, looking back at verse 1 and verse 2. Do you indeed speak righteousness? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? No. No. In your heart, or in heart, you work on righteousness. On earth, you weigh out the violence of your hands. Every bit about you runs contrary to the word of God, and it bleeds into everything you do. He's looking at these judges and saying they are fundamentally corrupt down to the very core of everything that makes them who they are. Notice it's from the heart that he's identifying their problem in verse 2. He's looking at them, he's saying, the very source of everything that makes you you, your loves, your desires, labors in essence to produce ungodliness. Rather than work with justice or just scales, you weigh out your plans for violence, but it comes from the heart. And this is one of the many times that Scripture just speaks so plainly to the real issue that you and I face, doesn't it? The real brass tacks, if you will, of who we are, that every man, woman, and child has a wayward heart. That we are a people who love to think so highly of ourselves, but at the end of the day, try as we might to explain it away, try as we might to suppress it or minimize it, the truth is that we are dealing with sin down in the very core of who we are. Our thoughts, our desires, our dreams, our hopes, our loves, everything stems from the heart. And the point of what he's making here is that he's just revealing it for how ugly it is. To these men, he looks at them and says, you're unable to produce righteous speech. Right? For out of the heart, our heart, the mouth speaks, doesn't it? You're unable to judge uprightly or 
with a proper righteous judgment. You're unable to work righteousness with your hands or to put it as he puts it, all you want to do is kill people. In verse 3, he just then amps it up even further. He just looks at it and says how we would say it, their origins, their nature is sown in total depravity. He says, from the time you were in the womb, you have been estranged from God. You claim to know this God, but you're estranged from him from the very moment you were conceived. And the way scripture speaks of every mankind, or every person that is man, rather, is that we're no exception to that rule. And David of himself in Psalm 51 says that we were conceived in sin. He says of himself, I was conceived in sin in my mother's womb. From the very first day I've gone astray. He's able to cut through the pretenses of it so quickly when he just looks at every last one of us and says, not even your sweet little baby is anything less than a sinner. Beyond even that, while he's in the womb, he is a sinner. And yet you and I do everything we can to avoid the illogical implications of that, don't we? And then you have the lie in verse 3. It's not merely that they've gone astray from birth. It's not merely they've gone their own way, rather. Ultimately, they speak lies, and in that they go astray from birth. It's the way of the liar. They've gone the way of the liar from the very first moment. And to put it bluntly, he says there's no other way for the liar to go than astray from God. The truth ultimately is not in him. We seldom contemplate the significance of a lie, even a little white lie as we've classified them. We don't look and see how destructive a lie can be. But understand the reality is that the lie and the truth are always at a crossroads. You can only ever go one way, in other words. You have the way of the lie, you have the way of the truth. They will never intersect. You are either a liar at heart or you are one who delights in the truth. You cannot go the way of the truth if you go the way of the lie. The further you go down this road of lies, the further you stray from God. That's all there ever is in it. The further you go the way of truth, the closer you are to him, for he is truth. But you cannot do both. You cannot be a liar and a truth teller. You cannot be. They will pull you in two different directions and there's nothing sadder than when you watch somebody who has not yet made the conscious decision to look at it and say, I will hate the lie and I will love the truth. And the reason why it's sad is because you see them at war and they're trying to straddle that fence, so to speak. They're trying to split themselves in two between these two different ways, but they will be ripped in half. You cannot go both ways. You'll only ever go the way of the liar. You and I must be convinced with every fiber of our being that lies are evil. They are satanic. If we're not, the only thing that'll ever come is that we will cozy up to them. We will cozy up to the one who is the father of lies. We will make our bed with Satan, so to speak. 
One lie. One lie is all it took for the whole of creation to be plunged under the weight of sin and death and an adversary in Satan. One lie. This is why he says they have the speech of serpents, the venom of serpents in their mouth. Verse 4. These are not ones though that can be tamed. They're not ones who can be defamed. They are obstinate. They will not listen to reason. They will not heed the word of God and submit themselves to the authority of the one true king over all the earth. They ultimately are filled with a pride, and a pride that's not the type of pride that will simply give up at one point or another. They will not yield themselves to anyone, let alone the one true God who rules over all things. Don't miss the point of them being called snakes, though. It's not that they're just cunning. It's not that they just pervert the law. It's not that they just lie. They can kill you. And this is what makes them particularly dangerous, doesn't it? I remember when I was about 10 years old, we lived in Arkansas. My mom's already smiling. She knows where this one's going. (laughs) The reality is that we... If you don't know anything about the South, it is teeming with wildlife that makes any 10-year-old boy absolutely giddy to just go run around and play for hours. And yet the reality is when we first moved there, I was told a very short statement, but that there are things that can kill you. Have fun, but there are things that can kill you. Of course, you don't listen super well as a young boy. The reality, though, is that that lesson came to bear one day when I was fishing, of all things, with my dad. We were standing on top of a fallen log in the river, and we were just simply casting away, trying to catch some smallmouth bass. And we were standing on this log for a good 30 minutes, and all of a sudden we looked down, and there's a den of copperheads all around us. Now, copperheads are not super venomous. One of them may not kill you with the bite. You still could die. But we stood atop about 200. And as my dad is taking the tip of the rod and just flipping them off, and we're, I'm running, and then he runs, and we finally get to safety, the, the reality is that the lesson was not lost on me. There are things that can kill you. There are things that are incredibly dangerous in this world. It's a dangerous place. Some things cannot be tamed. If you fool around, you'll find out, as many people like to say today. The reality is that there are men who are equally as dangerous as this. Some men cannot be tamed. And just as that snake that is venomous is a good snake if it's a dead snake, some men need to be put down. That's what the psalmist is looking at here. That's what he's seeing. He's saying they are a threat to life. They are a threat to the promises of God. They will not listen to reason. They need to go away. And yet the point we ought not miss in every bit of this is that this section simply describes you and I if we are not in Christ. Every last one of you in this room, can you not look at the language and see it? Estranged from birth, at enmity with one who is the creator, the one who knows violence in his hands, the liar, 
We like to look at this and read these things as if we are the innocent party. And that's the problem with imprecatory psalms. I say that, but I say it tongue in cheek because there's no actual problem with imprecatory psalms. But we look at everybody else in the world. We are so quick to do it and look at the people and say, hey, they're all wicked. They fit the embodiment of this psalm, don't we? And you wouldn't be wrong. But the reality hits a lot closer to home when we start to look at this and examine ourselves. We are the ones described here. You may not be a judge or a ruler, but you are really no different in the end if you were the man who is not listening to the word of God and submitting yourself to it. If you were the man who was known as a liar, if you cannot speak righteousness, if you cannot speak even with graciousness as Christ calls us to. The Apostle James ident- or really indicts the church as well with the same reality, doesn't he? He looks at a people and he says, you are ever hearing the word of God and yet you were never being changed by it. Both blessing and cursing pour from your mouths. And this should not be, brothers, he says. You are the man who stands before the mirror and you immediately go away and forget what you've looked like. That's what he says to a people who claim faith in Christ. For many of them, he says, you have a dead faith. You're no different than the world you'd like to condemn. In essence, is what James tells that church. It's so easy to do, isn't it? It's so easy for every last one of us to come face to face with the word of God and think far too often, though we would dare never say it, these are rules for thee, but not for me. What it just simply reveals is that we do not think of God as holy. We do not think of him as he says he is. We think trite thoughts of him. We do not see that the wrath of God is not a game and that sin is cosmic treason. Again, we can see the world's sin, we can hate it, we can grieve it. When was the last time that you looked at your own sin and hated it and mourned it? This is what put Christ to the cross. When was the last time Though you recognize sin makes you an enemy of God and the enemies of God will be defeated. That the only safe refuge is that you run with everything you have to Jesus Christ. That he'll defeat his enemies, not as if they're running away with their tail between their legs type of defeated, but utterly undone, utterly brought to ruin defeated. Sin is not an oopsie-daisy. It's rebellion. It's rebellion against the creator of this universe, and we so often just simply soften the blows when we look at it for ourselves. But it is what brings the wrath of God. God is holy. He demands perfect justice be done. He will execute perfect justice. When you downplay the wrath of God, the only thing that you do is make a mockery of his holiness. You and I can come into the church every single week. We can sing songs like we did today, wonderful songs, songs of God's grace, songs of his love. We can take communion and remember that he has saved us from our sin. 
But when you and I are confronted with a vision of his wrath against sin, what do we do but shrink back? Oh, it hurts. We all have our pet sins we defend, do we not? We'll, we'll share our prayer requests. I'm really struggling with lust. I'm really struggling with covetousness. The question is, how much are we actually struggling with it? Even as we admit we struggle, we still hold back. Do we not? We so often just play fast and loose with sin and the judgment of God. And that's ultimately my point is that if there are secret things in your heart, they won't stay secret, beloved. They never, ever do. And we can shake our head at that reality. But if you are not looking at it and saying, I know my own heart and that's not good, then you are the man who needs to just say, let me be quiet for a moment. Let me sit and just bask in the awesome holiness of God and recognize I'm the sinner condemned. Matt and I were talking about drug addicts of all things this week, and the reality is that this is a world he knows well as a former police officer. It's a world I know well as a former addict. And what we were simply bringing to mind is that in the end, whenever you're dealing with an addict, they always have more than one spot that they stash their stuff. They're always hiding it in all sorts of different places, and so many they may even forget where they've put it. But they don't just have one. And this is so much like you and I when we have our sin, is it not? We've got our little stashes over here and over here, and yet we put it over here and we forget that one day God will bring all things to light. There are no secrets before the Holy One. Every last thing will come out. This is something we warn of all the time. This is something that we say all the time that sin is not a game. It's a very serious thing. That we all must always be looking within our own hearts and saying, am I the one who has come before God And can I faithfully say that though you reveal my heart and lay it bare, that I can come forth unscathed? In all of it, what we see is the judgment of God never comes without a reason. And he promises that judgment must come within the household of God first. It is with difficulty, much difficulty, he says, that the righteous shall be saved, how much more so the rest of this world. When we look at it, beloved, it's sin. It's always been sin. God shines a spotlight on our sin. We either agree with God that it is sin, that it is deserving of death and deserving of eternal damnation, or we do not, but at the end of the day, our opinion doesn't make a lick of difference. We find ourselves either safe in Jesus Christ, who takes the wrath in our place, or we drink from it in full. But we cannot hide it. We cannot pretend as if it's not there. I think the true reason why we become so embarrassed over psalms like this, over words of fierce judgment, is we're embarrassed of the holiness of God. We don't take sin as seriously as we ought to. We're at home in a world we know is destined to be burned up by fire. 
destroyed because of sin, and yet we're comfortable in that world. And yet the large part of the problem, too, is that every last one of us lives in an affluent culture. Right? We all have money in the bank. We all have money in our pockets. We have much peace. We live in a world of Geneva Conventions where even our war is sanitized. We have an easy life. Far more often, we're just simply the perpetrator of this psalm rather than the victim. And that's why we shy away from judgment. But who you are in private is who you really are. Who I am in private is who I really am. We still don't see how ugly sin is. We still don't see how God's wrath is burning in anger every minute of the day because of sin. We have this sort of naivety that we live in because, again, that while we live in an evil culture and an evil time, while we can see the evil in our own hearts at times, there's this blissful ignorance that every last one of us has because of the world we live in today. And because of, the, because of that, we can't even fathom what it would look like to pray like this man prays here. We can't look upon the evil in our world and think that this would be an appropriate prayer. What the psalmist saw, though, was a complete upheaval of everything good. He saw a court system propped up on lies. There was malice and backdoor bribes. All the while, people who are innocent are being sold for a pair of sandals. You have wives and daughters that are being raped in front of their husband's eyes. You have parents that are having their children stolen. In some cases, even babies are being eaten. And all the while, families are being robbed of their God-given inheritance of the land, and they're being stripped of it. And that's just a short list. And when you see things like that, when you see sin for what it really, really is and how grotesque it is and how ugly it is, then you see things a bit differently, don't you? It's no wonder why in verse 6 he simply looks upon all of this and he says what he does. This is just brutal. Oh God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Yahweh. And he's looking at these men and he's saying, everything they do is built off of their lies, their vileness. Break their teeth. Don't allow them to speak anymore. Break out the sharp fangs that are being pounced upon people and ripping their jugular from their neck. Kill them. It's this classic example of the punishment fitting the crime, right? In every aspect, you look at the beginning, they have done this damage with their mouths. They're not just violent men, they're exceedingly violent in their speech. Everything that they're doing is trying to destroy the people of God, and he's looking upon them and saying, their mouths pervert justice, their mouths are destroying the people of God, so end it, God. Destroy them in their wickedness. Do not allow them to wag their vicious lying tongues and destroy us anymore. He's saying, take vengeance. You have promised to. He's looking at all the covenant promises and he knows that sin brings consequences, severe consequences. He knows that it requires judgment and justice, that God must judge evil, that God must fulfill his word 
You can imagine him even going back to the promises given to Abraham in Genesis 12, right? Be a blessing to those who bless and be a curse to those who curse. Lord, they are a curse. Curse them. Break their teeth. That's brutal. What he's doing is looking at them and saying, God, would you be faithful to your word? Would you be faithful to your promise? Will you remove the very tools they use to inflict upon the righteous, take away their weapons? Let us no longer suffer harm. And yet his cry for God's curse isn't even done here. (laughs) That's the scary thing, guys. It's not even done here. It's not enough that they have their mouths destroyed. He now prays for their complete destruction in verses 7 through 9. It says, let them flow away like water that runs off when he aims his arrows. Let them be as the headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind, the green and the burning alike. There's much going on here that needs a little bit of explanation. But the basic gist of it is that he's asking that they die. It's just that plain. When you look at it and it says, let the water, or basically let them fall away like water that runs off. Picture it like you're trying to cup water in your hands and try as you might to save it. It's literally just seeping out of the bottom of your hands. You can't contain it, can you? As soon as they try to grasp a hold of their lives, it's gone. He brings up the archery metaphor next, and all this is suggesting is that they won't be able to afflict the same damage they do. He says, let them, in essence, become utterly pointless, utterly harmless. And then he uses this parallelism of the snail and the miscarriage. And this one, we look at and we're like, oh, but the reality is he's like, bring them to a swift and merciless death. As the snail goes away, let them too melt away. As the light of the day was never seen by the infant in the womb, so too rob them of the light of day. Let them no longer have the preciousness of life. It's so incredibly harsh. But the point he's making is that these men need to be stopped. They're evil. They're wicked. They're literally causing every bit of life to be upended and ruined. They need to die and go away so they can never harm the righteous again. They are a threat to the life and promises of God. So he says, God, avenge your people. Verse 9 is a little difficult to convey because of how this breaks out in the Hebrew, but everything being described here is like you have a man who's gone off into the desert and he's going to pick up timber. He's picking up timber so he can light a fire and some of that Timber is old, it's ready to be burned, it's browned, right? But some of it is freshly cut down. It's still green and so it won't burn like the seasoned wood will. And so he says, before the heat of the fire from the seasoned thorns even reaches the green thorns to try and keep that fire alive, swept away in a whirlwind. Utterly done. In essence, everything he's describing here is that whether the wicked are 
of this prime stage of life, right? They're young, or whether they are in the oldest stage of life, they've reached that ripe old age and can retire and kick back. He says they're going to be swept back in a torrent of God's wrath before the heat from the fire even reaches to consume the stuff that's hard to burn, all of it's gone. And if you notice, the tense of the verse has even changed here in verse 9. So he looks upon this, right? He judges them in verses 1 through 5. He says they're evil, right? God's judgment must come against evil. Then he goes and says, shatter their teeth, Lord. Destroy them, Lord. Judge evil. Actually bring the consequences. But here in verse 9, perfect future. He sees it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God will do it. God will sweep them away. He will curse them. Their judgment will come. It will be final, horrendous. They shall never again pray upon the righteous. God will take vengeance. And that's the point. God will exhort his wrath upon them But more than this, we see that God is the bringer of those consequences. He sees it all. He is not impressed. And he is the one who will sleep them away. Many like to think that God will not bring them to face judgment in this life or the next. I certainly was that man. When I was an unbeliever, I literally was the guy who was thinking, just like many others, I'm like, at my funeral, perhaps I'll have him play Frank Sinatra's tune. I did it my way. Yeah. That's the anthem of hell. In the end, every single person will stand before their maker and they will give an account for their life. Every last nanosecond of their life. And on that day, the only thing that will keep them safe from the wrath of God will not be if they have been a kind-hearted person. It will not be if they have given things to their neighbor out of their need. Those things are all wonderful things and things you must do, but the only reason they'll be saved from the wrath to come is if they have believed upon the name of Jesus Christ. That is it. For all who are not found in Jesus Christ, he says that the fullness of wrath will be poured out upon them. God will be vindicated by his perfect execution of justice. He will take vengeance upon whom vengeance is due. It's impartial. So he can look upon the one who professes faith in Christ and yet is the hypocrite, and he can judge them just as much as he can judge the rock-ribbed atheist, just as much as he can judge a sexual idolater, just as much as he can judge all pagan nations. But the psalmist is looking at it and saying, these men are very clearly the wicked, yet they know better. So the question ultimately is, what is he doing? Why is he using this language? What do we do? Do we use it? What's the responsibility of the Christian in light of the fact that God will take vengeance? Well, in Romans 12, you don't need to turn there, but there's this rather interesting command that Paul gives to the Christian in light of this fact He's commanding them, he's saying, never take your own revenge, beloved, never, but leave room for the wrath of God. Why? Because vengeance is mine. I will repay, 
leave room for the wrath of God. The idea is that by leaving room for the wrath of God, you are actually allowing more and more wrath, the full measure of God's wrath to come upon them. That by doing kindness to them, you are actually adding to that punishment. In other words, day by day, God's righteous wrath is being revealed against them or will be revealed against them on that day of judgment. But day by day, it is stacking up little by little and the clock is ticking. And so for the Christian, he looks at them and says, instead of you pouring out your own type of vengeance, your own type of wrath, leave room. God will fill it. But for two, bless those who persecute you. I say again, bless them. And again, for a very interesting reason. He says it not because they'll get warm and fuzzy on the inside and they'll start to treat you nicer. He says, not because you'll feel warm and fuzzy and you'll feel good about what you've done. It's not your good deed for the day. It says, by being a blessing to them, you will heap burning coals upon their head. In other words, by being a blessing to those who hate you, who revile you, who want to see you dead, you will only add to their judgment and shame. If you do not return evil for evil, but instead overcome evil with good, God will repay. And the fullness of his wrath will come upon them. In fact, even more wrath will come upon them as you have treated them, not as they deserved, but with kindness, with love and compassion. And at the end of the day, is this not exactly what Jesus Christ has done for every last one of you? Where you deserve the fullness of God's wrath being poured out, and yet instead of giving you as you deserved, he has treated you with compassion, he has given you kindness, he sacrificed himself in your place. The very basis for why we are a blessing to our enemies is because of what Jesus has done. And yet in that, there is this promise, there is this reward given that God will pour out his wrath for the one who will not repent. Some are so concerned with giving their opinion about everything that they have never, and I mean never, actually obeyed this command. They've given their opinions online. They've posted it to social media, crying about the vileness of sin, the vileness of this world, and yet they've never made it an effort to be a blessing to those who hate them. At the end of the day, though, you leave vengeance to God. Your opinion doesn't matter, beloved. My opinion doesn't matter. What matters is that we are a blessing, that we honor God's commands. What matters is that God, in his complete perfection of righteousness, can extend vengeance and do it blamelessly. If you're honest with yourselves, every time you even try to return tit for tat, do you not screw every bit of it up? Do you not then also now need to seek forgiveness because you, a sinner, decided to vent your wrath and therefore poured forth more vile speech and hate and sin? God says, don't worry about it. Not your sin, but don't worry about the vengeance. Worry about being a blessing. 
Vengeance is his. He will repay you. The consequences of sin will come. They always do. They are never, ever going to go away. And they will either fall upon the sinner or upon Christ in the sinner's place. But wrath must come. Justice must be done. And when it comes, no matter how it comes, if you are in Christ, it will actually be a thing of joy for you. That's the crazy thing to us. In the case of this psalm, he looks upon the wicked and he says, when they're brought to final justice, there's joy. Verses 10 and 11. Notice what he says here. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. Right? I mean, these, this is utterly brutal. The scenes depicted here, there's just that the enemies will be completely slaughtered. The righteous are going to walk through this battlefield steeped in their blood and they will rejoice over their, their downfall. In essence, they're saying, God has done what is right. God judged. This is good. Surely there is a reward. God has filled up their joy. And yet the rejoicing is not merely that these men have been defeated, but that the righteous will have their entire life of faith vindicated in the end. Everything that they have lived their lives under submission to the word of God or given up simply because they need to for the sake of following God, everything that they have said, done, and heard and submitted themselves to the same things will be vindicated at the end of all days. No matter how much vile speech was poured out against them, no matter how many people came and persecuted them or tried to kill them, every bit of it, he says, will be vindicated and the righteous will rejoice. Right? In our world, it always seems as if the wicked just get away with everything, doesn't it? That there's never a punishment that comes. I mean, you and I watched our city burn. And you looked at it, and now you can look at it, and things are rebuilt. But at the end of all that time, do you really feel like any justice was accomplished? The fine men and women of Kenosha were often handcuffed to where they couldn't even bring justice. All the time, you see men and women climb into power. They're evil. They use that power to gain more power, more influence. You see people who lie, cheat, steal, murder, and more, seemingly without consequences. The reality of what's depicted here, though, is that no one gets off scot-free. Not a soul. It doesn't matter if they avoid justice in this life. They'll get it in the next. No one is free from the consequence. But then again, think of all the ways in which the righteous will be vindicated because that's what he's talking about here, too. Think of all the ways you've been maligned or mocked for following Jesus Christ, all the ways that you've been treated like an idiot, you've been called one, you've been called a bigot, whatever else that they want to call you, it doesn't really matter. Think of all the different things that you've sacrificed, the promotions maybe you've given up because you can't go that way. It would be sin. The things that you've done that you've suffered under, not because you were, again, in sin being punished for that, but you've suffered in innocence. All of that will be validated. All of that will be vindicated when Jesus Christ returns. The life of faith will be shown to bear the only fruit that actually matters in the end because with it comes the reward. 
the reward of eternal life, but also the reward of seeing actual judgment and justice take place fully and finally. There is an end to evil. There's an end to suffering. There's an end to injustice. And that's why it becomes the thing of joy. And it's not merely that God judges evil as he has promised to do and that he ends evil as he has promised to do, but that he rewards the righteous as he has promised to do. And so it does indeed depict a time of final judgment, final wrath, but it also depicts a time of final salvation. On the day that God's righteous wrath from heaven is revealed against all ungodliness, the only one who will be left standing is the Christian. And it's not because of their own personal righteousness. It's not because of all the different things that they have said that they can do or have done. It is purely because they have cast themselves before Jesus Christ and he has been merciful and forgiven them, that he has taken their sin upon himself and drank the cup of God's wrath in full. That is it. There is no other way. And what you see on that day, if you are the one who professes to hope in these things, is that God indeed will save us to the uttermost. For the Christian, it's a time of incredible hope and joy. It's a time of incredible rejoicing. There's no more sin, no more death, no more Satan. None of that. It all goes away. It's all burned up in judgment. But at the same time, it is a time of great upheaval. What is a time of joy for the Christian is not a time of joy for the unbeliever. It is a time of pure terror. Pure, unending terror. And so you, if you are the man who looks to all of this with much glee, utter glee, instead of sobriety, you have missed the entire point. Understand, this is not merely time where your political, your social opponents, or even your own personal vendettas are met in the justice that you think they should be done. It's not just a time for the worst of the worst that fall under condemnation or all those who are against you. The judgment of God indeed will fall upon the unjust ruler. It'll fall upon the wicked. It will fall upon everybody who is an enemy of the children of God. But that will include your unbelieving family and your friends. For some of you, that means your wives, your children, your neighbors. Think of all the people you know. And if you look upon it with glee, especially when you hear Christ say the way is narrow and few will enter, you've missed the entire point. You are like Jonah. (laughs) Are you just to be angry? If I shall have mercy upon whom I shall have mercy, what is it to you? Would you not rather see mercy go forth to accomplish God's justice. The whole point of these warnings of judgment, the whole point is that men will hear of the wrath to come, they will repent and they will believe. They will have eternal life and forgiveness. 
Your desire, your consuming desire should be to see that for them and not that everyone burn and get what they deserve. Because if everyone got what they deserve, that would include you burning. But if your immediate reaction is hearing all of this and finding it disgusting, distancing yourself from the wrath of God, that you're apprehensive of it, you've also missed the entire point. Sin is an affront to God. And it must be judged. It must be dealt with. Justice must go forth. But it can only and ever go forth in God's way and from God himself. The joy of judgment is ultimately bound up in the fact that you can trust God will deal out perfect justice in the end. He will deal out perfect justice but understand that cuts both ways. Wickedness may seem to pay off in the here and now, but it will not pay off in the end. Only the righteous receive a reward, but no one will stand in complaint. Everything will be laid bare. Everything that God does on that final day will not only be fair, it will be good and right. And every last one of us will agree with it. We will see exactly what this psalm shows us. God's judgment never comes without reason. That reason is sin. We've all willingly gone astray from birth and sinned against our maker. We all deserve condemnation. We all deserve wrath. Secondly, you will see God's judgment never comes without consequence. Those consequences have been revealed for millennia, beloved. There is a day of wrath coming. Not a single soul can hide from it. But no single soul can also pretend as if they are something when they're not. God sees past the facade. But for three, God's judgment never comes without salvation. And that doesn't mean that everybody's saved in the end, but what it does mean is that for the righteous, there is a thing of great hope bound up in it because then all things will be made new. The curse will be made or no more. And yet for the wicked, that is a time in which you are to see it and understand that now you are called to repentance and faith. That you too can be free from the wrath to come. That you, through repentance and faith in this one called Jesus Christ, you can find forgiveness of sin. So imprecatory psalms ultimately are designed to bring you and I to a gut check. At the end of the day, that's what they're designed for every one of us. On the day of judgment, every single thing will be revealed. The only thing that will matter is if you are safe in Christ or if the cup of God's wrath will fall on you in full. Let's pray. Well, Father, if there were any of us who had to stand before you of our own merits and works, there would be none who could. We would all be brought to ruin. Every last one of us. I pray that you would break our hearts over our sin, that we would not toy with it. We would not be a people who flirt with it. We would see that it is against sin that wrath has come. We would not make a mockery of the spilled blood of Jesus Christ, for that wrath came against him if we trust in you. I pray that we would be a holy people as you are holy, 
that we would seek to evangelize those who do not know the gospel, we would see them as souls. We would not grow embittered. Even while much evil may be done against us, that we would be a people of much hope and joy. That we would bless those who curse us, trusting vengeance to you, and hoping against all hope that you would just be merciful to them. I pray for the one here who may not know Jesus Christ, that you would strike them to the heart. Let them see that salvation is a free gift offered indiscriminately to all. But let them first see that your wrath is also against all, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. May that drive them to repentance and faith, that they may join us in praising you and giving you much thanks for your salvation. Pray that you would send everyone home this week, that you would bring to us a sense of sobriety. May we first and foremost ever look at ourselves. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.